Welcome to UBP's Investment Outlook 2024. This series of six episodes will explore UBP's key convictions for the upcoming year. We will be covering topics such as the economic environment, our main plays, as well as a specific risk. I'm your host, Robert Wibberley, from UBP's Group Communications. In this episode, titled The Two Faces of Energy Transition, we delve into the global energy transition. We examine how it's progressing, as well as also the reasons behind the recent lack of performance in the energy transition theme. We shall culminate in an examination of the interplay between old and new energy sources. To navigate this involving theme, I am joined by Mark Elliott, UBP's Energy Transition Investment Specialist. Hi, Mark. Thanks for joining the podcast. Hi, Rob. Thanks for having me along. So, as a primer, and just so that we're all on the same page, briefly, what is the energy transition and which sectors are most involved in it? So, the energy transition we have today is one whereby we're trying to reduce and cut our exposure to fossil fuels. Uh, to decarbonize, but also to reduce our reliance on, shall we say, less reliable and more volatile sources of fossil fuels, i.e. certain nations which are very fossil fuel rich, Russia, Middle East, etc., which add implied volatility to the market. Um, so that's kind of what the energy transition is today. And moving also to a changing demand paradigm where a lot of our energy needs are being increasingly electrified going forward because ultimately that is a better outcome um, long term. Let's say, for example, an electric car is increasingly viewed as a better proposition than a gasoline car, not just for its environmental credentials, but also from what it can do and its potential. Thanks for that. And so how do you think the energy transition is progressing? I think it's actually going pretty well at the moment. I mean, no transition is ever linear. And certainly this is a long term journey. If we just think about purely the environmental agenda, that is 2050 net zero. So we've got nearly 30 years ahead of us uh, on this particular journey, if that is ultimately Net zero is, is the core driving force. Um, but it's also the evolution of, of, of our energy systems. So, yes, we're seeing a record uh, quantities of renewable deployment taking place. I think the IEA was saying this year it will, in terms of deployment, uh, is certainly going to be more than there has ever been deployed. It is, shall we say, a bit mixed in where it is happening regionally. Um, but certainly China is leading. But North America, Europe also, certainly uh, accelerating efforts there. So on the ground, I would say there's a lot of activity. Are you surprised by the acceleration? Not when you consider some of the macroeconomic events that have occurred, notably the loss of Russian gas into Europe was a material paradigm shift to the energy transition. You know, Russia's supplying about, I think it's 40, 45% of our natural gas. It is now a fraction of that that's still coming in. It has exposed the fragilities in the European economy to this volatility. It required governments to spend huge amounts of money to uh, support the consumer. And so the need and the imperative to accelerate was certainly took place, but it also formed 
part of a political agenda, notably in the US with the Biden administration. And I guess the Biden administration um, got the Inflation Reduction Act bill passed, which is perhaps the biggest piece of legislation seen, uh, certainly in the West, uh, to drive the energy transition forward. And that was a surprise when it happened. It, it, it happened in the middle of last year, and it did not look like it was going to take place. And then uh, sort of in the final hour, it got passed. Um, Taking a step back and just looking at the key building blocks to the energy transition, what are they and how are they progressing? There's many facets to the energy transition, but I think we can perhaps simplify uh, to an extent by saying front and center of it all are the utilities. They are the grid operators. They are the generators of electricity. So they're front and center. They are the guys who generate and deliver us our energy, our energy needs in the homes, not fuel, not for cars, et cetera, et cetera but certainly when you switch the light on. So they're front and center, and they're seeing very strong growth. Other blocks include resources. The energy transition is inevitably going to be very resources intensive. It's going to need huge amounts of metal to build the infrastructure. Once the infrastructure is built, it's there for 30, 40, 50 years. But that building phase is going to be very substantial. Then there are the industrial companies that are very active in the space and providing the widgets we need. So that's transformers, batteries, uh, switch gear, cables, all of those sorts of companies, engineering companies that are going to be participating in this kind of long-term growth theme. And then finally, perhaps you consider some of the pure play, more technology end of the spectrum, um, solar, wind, more specifically, uh, which sort of semi-industrial companies um, that are participating. And are all these companies and sectors, are they progressing in unison? Or are certain companies facing bottlenecks or headwinds? I think they're not in unison. And, and as it's sort of a, such a wide sort of theme, touching on many different sectors, there are certain aspects that have sped up and slowed down. Arguably, let's say the residential side of the equation where it's things like rooftop solar, etc. That has really sort of suffered in, in uh, the last sort of few months or so. How come? Uh, that's really been rates and macroeconomic issues. When people buy homes, for example, they are sacrificing extras such as rooftop solar because that's debt financed and high rates drag or certainly dissuade and add to the cost basis. Utilities, uh, some are facing some issues with interest costs, but I would say by and large, most particularly regulated utilities are cracking on with plans, no material problems to report. I mean, there's a little bit of disruption. I mean, there's some problems such as in the US, there's queues to get spaces on the grid. That will be resolved in time. And I think some of what we're seeing is a bit of a clear out of the weaker actors in the space um, that came about from a lower rates, low cost, easy capital world. So now it's sort of, I would say the quality is being improved across the thematic. And you um, touched upon this earlier um, with the US, the Inflation Reduction Act. But how important has the government support been from the US, from China and from the EU? Government support has sort of been intrinsic 
probably from the very beginning because the energy transition, you, you know, you're trying to get consumers to buy into a different sourcing of their utility. It's not like they're buying consumer products and you're buying a Nokia, an old Nokia phone and moving on to an iPhone, which is a very consumer driven uh, uh, product here. It's switching on the lights and the man on the street it doesn't really make a difference. And governments are trying to force a change upstream of that uh, and new technologies need government support to kind of get them into the scale up period. So if we roll the clock back 20 years, you know, huge subsidies were given notably by European, the UK for wind was one, a big one, Denmark and other places to kind of get wind deployed at high prices, which would then de-risk the proposition for people to invest and build. And then scale up happens and then the economics get better. I think the rule of thumb is for each doubling of capacity, um, cost per unit of new product produced comes about, down about 20%. So the government subsidies were essential to get the scale up going. Now to get the acceleration going, government subsidies are still certainly playing a role. And that is being driven not only by an environmental agenda, but other sort of geopolitical agendas where they're trying to kind of move the, the renewable and the sort of green energy forward as quickly as possible. This segues neatly into the next point I'd like to raise. Historically, the energy transition has been much focused on climate change. But we also saw with the Russia-Ukraine war and Europe being cut off from Russia gas supplies, there has been an acceleration for Europe to find alternative sources of energy. How important is that? I think certainly the Russia-Ukraine uh, crisis, losing Russian gas into Europe, uh, more recently, you know, when we saw the spike in oil prices last year, I think we're up to $120, $130 a barrel. Uh, coal went to, thermal coal, I think went to over $300 a tonne. You saw an energy crisis unfold. And to tackle that, governments had to spend vast hundreds of billions in subsidizing the consumer. You know, ultimately, in a context of energy, the governments cannot let the consumer freeze in winter nor bake too much in summer. Uh, furthermore, you can't hide from the sort of climate change aspect, which is requiring great government interaction to drive this forward. In that extreme weather events puts more strain on our infrastructure and our, on our energy supplies. The Texas big freeze, interestingly, everyone said, oh, yeah, the wind turbines didn't work in in, in that, those super cold temperatures, true. But the bigger hit to power supply was actually the old thermal plants that froze up and couldn't supply and gas rigs, that, gas wells that froze and couldn't supply gas. So there's an absolute desperate need to diversify our energy systems to provide the consumer with greater reliability. So, you know, government support is certainly not just about this decarbonization agenda is to ensure that the consumer has reliable, safe power. If the lights go out, governments get overthrown. They know that. So they've got to act. So in short, what we can say is that the energy transition is happening. And if anything, it's accelerating. Yes, I think it is accelerating, not just from policy decisions, but from macroeconomic events and volatile fuel sources, changing weather conditions and patterns that are certainly highlighting the risk for more energy, ironically. So yes, huge amounts of activity. I think also not to forget a lot of regions, a lot of developed economies, notably Europe, but Japan also, and China, perhaps to a lesser extent, are big 
importers of energy in various forms, oil, LNG, coal, etc. Huge importers. There's a strategic attraction from changing their energy system to making it more local and therefore needing less imports, less cash going out the door, keeping it locally. Because a renewable energy system is a much, much more local energy system than one that is tied to international trade. If you take that statement then that the energy transition is accelerating, then why haven't the key energy transition themes performed recently? I think there's a a number of facets here. We are certainly seeing a derating in in the sector of valuations. That is in part being driven by a higher rate world. And I think that's something that affects a lot of equity classes and sectors in that with, you know, the investor can get a rather attractive return on a treasury or a bond, Mm -hmm. and that's perceived as much lower risk. Furthermore, the theme itself is largely a duration sector, e.g. it's a long life capital heavy proposition, which trades negatively to higher rates. And so I think that's been an issue to contend with. And I think there has been some adverse liquidity events whereby there's been perceptions around, notably in the US, around ESG investing that have turned a bit more negative, but also just overall there has been a sort of a a leaving a flight of cash out of the space that has sort of impacted the valuations. And that is despite many of the participants in the theme consistently upgrading uh, their projections going forward. You mentioned that the impact of the rates. Um, Could you explain a bit more what's going on there? Yeah, I mean, I think two things. One, higher rates make uh, the sort of bond and the treasuries market more attractive because there's a higher yield on it. Uh, For the last, since the GFC, arguably, uh, there wasn't much yield to be achieved from that. So a lot more money went into equities. Um, And also just the simple maths of a higher rate environment means the future is worth less on a discounted cash flow model. So for sectors that are all about 20, 30, 40 year asset lives, arguably they are worth less in a higher rate world than in a low rate world. And that has dragged on the valuations, um, a lot of which I think is probably overdone because the growth trajectory of a lot of these companies has accelerated quite considerably, uh, more than enough, I would argue, to offset the higher rates. But at the moment, you know, the market does not look that far forward. And so it has been certainly challenging times in recent months. So, so what should investors do? I think in this environment, one needs to certainly play for defense. Uh, this is why focusing on areas such as regulated utilities makes a lot of sense because the impact and the influence of rate changes are passed through to the consumer and don't really disrupt the business model. Many utilities are managing things perfectly well uh, because of the increase in power prices is more than sufficient to offset the drag of higher interest costs. So I think you can sort of play it through those ways and in larger liquid companies. A lot of the industrial companies where they see, and they're much more sort of value plays, but they are seeing a strong uptick in demand for a lot of their products. And a lot of the areas they're working in are also good spaces to to sort of participate in. So how do we navigate this going forward? I think nimbly is the answer. Um, 
The reality is that you have to look to the macro signals first. So what is going on with rates? What is the Fed going to say? And if we're going to sort of see an inflection and a reduction, we play into that. It is a political argument. So what do you mean by an inflection or reduction? If, if rates are going to go down going forward, um, when rate cuts come about, that is certainly a tailwind to the sector uh, to play into. It's not the only sector to play into, farmer and defensives. I think you also have to consider the macroeconomic context. Is the outlook sentiment in the market more bearish or bullish and, and orientate our, our way around that? We've covered the energy transition, but where does the old energy fit in? So old energy, you know, if we roll the clock back, let's say to 2019, 2020, the time of COVID, um, we can see the world kind of fell out of love with old energy. That was driven not only by the sort of environmental agenda. Um, interestingly, I think that it became far more present in investor and people of mindsets because all of a sudden, during COVID lockdowns, we noticed a change to our environments. And I think that's underappreciated. I remember very clearly uh, going, being in London, walking around, looking up at the sky one day and seeing it bright blue in a manner that I don't really recall ever seeing before. Um, so I think all of a sudden that whole environmental attraction got a real tailwind as we were all locked down, looking at the world, rates were low, stimulus came along to support the consumer, and oil demand collapsed. And it collapsed because, of course, we were locked down. We weren't driving, we weren't flying, we weren't traveling. And oil prices on the forward curve even went negative. So when we look back on it around that time, for some time after, oh, well, it's the end of the old uh, energy paradigm, and as we've moved forward, reopening came along and people started traveling. A surge in activity took place. Yeah. Underinvestment had taken place in the underlying resources base. Um, ESG agendas had constrained capital into the space. And then... What, what do you mean by that? So many energy companies, old energy companies, certainly find it harder to secure debt financing than they did in the past. Um, valuations for resources companies producing coal, gas, etc. were depressed. Uh, and so consequently, the companies are very basically focused very much more on cash generation and not growth and investment. So that certainly has an impact on the supplies of these, these raw materials, which subsequently, when we saw demand recover and disruptions in supply side, which was particularly notable with the spike in the oil prices last year. In Europe, when we lost the Russian gas and gas went to absolutely insane pricing, seven, six, seven, eight hundred euros a, uh, a megawatt hour, which is absolute record, and now has rebased higher structurally. You know, European power prices, for example, used to the long term run at about 40 euros a megawatt hour. Now the forward curve for some years ahead is of the order of 100 euros a megawatt hour, so it's more than doubled because it's underpinned by a fossil fuel base. All of these, I think, have really highlighted our energy systems are still heavily dependent, heavily orientated towards fossil fuels. And I would argue these companies today, they're recognized as forming part of the solution. They're not just a problem that needs to be tackled. So what do you mean they're part of the solution? 
Well, we need them around to make sure our energy costs don't get too out of hand. You know, we learned during the crisis, particularly in Europe, when energy costs too much, industry shuts down, economies move into recession, people can't keep their, turn their lights on, heat their homes, and all those sorts of issues occur. So we need these companies to make sure that we still have energy at an affordable price, and energy supplied at a, at a rate that, is, that enables our economies to be competitive. But do you see do you see that the old energy and the new energy are in conflict with each other, or they're working together? I think they've now moved to the phase where they are much more in heading in the same direction. That is in part due to stimulus and government interference in the markets, in a positive sense, such as the Inflation Reduction Act in the U.S. gives huge incentives for blue and green hydrogen, effectively decarbonized hydrogen. And hydrogen is a huge commodity going into all sorts of industries, fertilizers, explosives, uh, and, and in the petrochem industry. So they really do form, I would argue, part of ensuring we have continued energy security, energy delivery, and also they are generating capital that is ultimately also working its way back into the decarbonization agenda. The big Oil companies, they know full well that sort of 20, 30% of the barrel goes into road fuel. And we're now going to EVs. So you speak to the oil companies, particularly the, the refining end of the spectrum, and they know they face a structural decline. And so they need to reposition their portfolio to manage that decline. And a lot of it is coming about by looking at EV charging, building renewables. So BP has a strategy of being net long energy and matching their energy in, let's say, EV chargers with renewable supply so they can effectively arbitrage. And that's the kind of model they pursue. Thanks, Mark. I mean, we're coming to the end of the podcast. Um, but just as a wrap-up question, where does this all take us in 30, 40 years from today? So... Step one, the environmental agenda, hopefully, I'm not sure we will get to net zero to the targets we need, but we'll be well underway with uh, much less pollution. And energy transitions of the past have often been or had a pollution tackling uh, aspect to them and burning dirty coal in cities, etc., and smog. So cleaner skies. I think the other thing is ultimately... Where does this take? If, if our energy is supplied from a renewable source, then it's likely to come out as a far more stable cost base. Uh, and, and to give the example, you're having a lot of uh, big energy consumers, and particularly the tech companies have led this, uh, pushing hard for renewable energy. That is done partly because they wish to decarbonize and, be, uh, uh, and make the world a better place. But it's also, they know full well, particularly big industrial users, volatile cost inputs are very problematic for the business model. And if you have renewables, whilst you might have intermittency to deal with, you can go and lock in your supply and be within a few percentage points of what you'll get delivered because of the intermittency on a year-on-year basis for 10, 15, 20 years, which is very, very valuable to business models and planning because once you know you can budget for it and manage and accommodate it and optimize your business model around that. So I think that's one aspect. Furthermore, it's, there's going to be all sorts of value creation. And I think the way technology is moving ahead, AI coming in, which is also going to be a big power consumer, by the way. Um, but looking at the information we have today, home metering systems, etc., bring the consumer into being more integrated in the energy, energy systems. 
and they will also be able to participate going forward in trying to sort of decarbonize. I, we're not going to use our washing machine at 6 p.m. We have a smart home system that can do it at another time. We have our EV, which is linked into our contracts. So, you know, I think energy will become more of a service model, perhaps not dissimilar to the way it evolved with mobile phones. Sort of 20, 30 years ago, you'd buy your mobile phone for whichever provider had the coverage that suited you best. And I remember you'd look at a little map of the UK in my particular instance and go, oh, you know, orange is good for where I'm living, but it's not very good for some other part of the country. And uh, now today you buy your mobile package because everyone's probably got pretty much the same coverage. You buy a mobile package to give you the services that you want. And I think energy ultimately will start to move in this direction. You'll be able to have a smart home system linked to your EV, linked to your strategy on how you want to price your energy. Do you want maximum flexibility and have energy when you want, however you want, where you want? Or do you want to really be as cost controlled as you possibly can be so you consume energy at optimized times? Uh, so I think there's going to be all sorts of things that come out of that. The scale up of other aspects of our energy systems, like, such as Green hydrogen, I think that's a longer term thing, but uh, cheap green hydrogen flowing around could deliver us all sorts of interesting benefits of fuel for trucking, for example, for trains, maybe for planes. So that's kind of where it all leads. It's going to affect numerous facets of our lives. And I think just the way we consume energy will be changed quite materially. So the energy transition theme is here to stay. I think, yes, the, the, uh, we've opened Pandora's box um, and it's not too scary, hopefully. Thank you very much, Mark, for your time today. Pleasure. Thanks, Robert. Thank you for listening to this podcast. If you would like to explore more of our insights, please tune in to our Spotify channel or go to upp.com.